you have a real stake in whether Germans figure this out, because what happens in Germany has a significant impact on the prosperity, the stability, and the security of Europe. It's not just a, an, a matter of academic interest. It is actually a matter of genuine political and economic interest for America. Welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. My name is Franz Cecilia. Ever since Germany's current chancellor, Angela Merkel, announced that she would not be running for her a record fifth term as chancellor, there have been major question marks as to who will be the one to succeed her. On this episode of Hopkins POFA, we discuss the domestic and foreign policy legacy of Angela Merkel, delve into the results of the September 26th German federal election, and attempt to imagine how German foreign policy towards the European Union, China, Russia, and the United States will be changing in the coming years. To discuss these subjects and more, we're joined today by Dr. Constanze Stelzenmüller. Dr. Stelzenmüller is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and an expert on German, European, and transatlantic foreign and security policy. She's also a former guest of the podcast, and we're delighted to have her on again. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Constance, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. Well, thank you for having me on. Before we delve into the results and implications of the 2021 German federal election, I think it would be useful for our listeners to understand the magnitude of the legacy of Angela Merkel and what she's leaving behind. Domestically, what far-reaching decisions stand out over the last 16 years to you? Well, I think there's two ways of looking at her legacy. One one is far-reaching decisions. The other one is her sort of long-term impact over the 16 years that she was in power. Um, there are two big decisions that people always name. One is um, her deciding to take Germany out of civilian nuclear power um, after the Fukushima nuclear power plant disaster um, in 2011, and the second was uh, taking in over a million refugees, mostly from the Middle East and Northern Africa, in the 2015 um, refugee crisis. But the I think if you want to look at her long-term impact, on one that is not sort of connected to any single event, you'd have to say that she really presided over a historic period of prosperity and and power of Germany, um, uh, her country, leading to Germany becoming the anchor economy of Europe and of the European Union. And in the realm of foreign policy, how did this um, focus on the German economy and make, making the German economy stronger affect her, her foreign policy decisions? Would you say that there is a distinctive Merkel doctrine? And if so, what does it entail? Well, I'm not sure that she would call it a doctrine um, because she is, you know, notoriously uninclined to use pompous labels for herself or the things that she does. But I think that um, she, her tenure was characterized by an emphasis on consensus building in Europe 
um, and an emphasis on consensus building in the transatlantic relationship, while also attempting to preserve important energy and trading relationships with Russia and with China. Um, that generated some frictions, some value conflicts, um, and, and indeed political disagreements, sh quite sharp disagreements with neighbors and allies. But I think her, her intention was always to build bridges and to balance um, friends and allies and even competitors out. Constance, I think that's a great overview of, of Angela Merkel, both in the domestic side of things and the foreign policy side of things. And now, as, as, as we all know and the world knows, Chancellor Merkel's decided to step down uh, at, or will be stepping down after the coalition talks <coughs> yield a new chancellor. But her decision to step down raised the stakes of the 2021 German federal election. And on, on September 26th, and for the first time in almost two decades, the Social Democratic Party of Germany achieved a plurality, a, a plurality of the vote. So while difficult coalition negotiations still remain, do you mind giving our listeners an overview of Olaf Scholz, who likely stands to be the sure. next chancellor of Germany? Sure. Um, I, just for precision's sake, um, she didn't so much step down as not run again. Um, that's an important difference. And um, she, I think, uh, wisely decided that four terms was enough. Um, I, I agree with that. I think that the current, uh, the, the electoral performance of her party, the Christian Democrats, and the current um, circular firing squad going on among her would-be successors as leaders of the party, I think is very much evidence of that. But um, I, I, in fact, personally think it would be healthy for German democracy if we had term limits, but that's just a footnote. On Olaf Scholz, um, Olaf Scholz is the current finance minister of the Grand Coalition government. So um, yesterday, the new federal legislature, the 20th, after uh, the end of World War II and the recreation of Germany, was inaugurated. Um, and so Merkel and her government got their dismissal papers from the government, but they are staying, I'm sorry, they got their dismissal papers from the president of Germany, but they're staying in power as the caretaker government. And so you have the ironic situation that Merkel's finance minister is also the future chancellor who is currently presiding over uh, government formation negotiations with two other parties, the Greens and the Liberals. He is a um, North German. The North Germans are uh, known for being uh, not particularly emotive um, and, and terse, and he is no exception. He is a former mayor of Hamburg, the port city of Northwestern Germany. Um, he was quite left-wing when he was young. That was also when he still had curls. Now he has um, a practically shaven head and is seen as a a uh, member of the more conservative, uh, centrist right wing of the Social Democratic Party. He, um, his probably most distinctive historic achievement um, in his tenure as Merkel's finance minister in her fourth grand coalition, or rather her fourth government and third grand coalition, she, in, in, in between she governed with the liberals for one term as well. But his most significant historic achievement, I think, is... Um, designing and pushing through 
getting Merkel to accept and her party to accept the 750 billion euro um, European recovery program last the past spring um, that was su supposed to take the European economy out of its pandemic doldrums. And, and I frankly shudder to think what would have happened to Europe and not just the European economy if we hadn't had that package. So I think that really is a historic achievement. That is not to say that he doesn't have some uh, sort of shadows on, on his CV. He does. Um, he, as mayor of Hamburg, presided over really terribly violent um, protests at the at the G20 meeting a few years ago. Um, and when I say presided over, I, I meant f failed to prevent adequately, uh, which is what the city police was supposed to do, but they were completely unprepared and overwhelmed for, for these protests. And um, there have been a couple of instances of severe financial oversight failures that fall within the responsibility of his ministry. The most famous scandal is the Wirecard scandal, um, where a financial services firm um, that was a major um, a major German um, startup, uh, something that the chancellor try herself tried to promote abroad, turned out to have been based on completely fraudulent bookkeeping and operations and had to be shut down. And I think one of its uh, CEOs is still um, wanted by Interpol. Um, but that's not, not a personal oversight of his, it just is a weakness of the German financial accountability, makes it open to corruption and something that I, I think, you know, he was much criticized for and still is criticized for not um, instituting oversight and to an adequate degree and, and in a timely manner. But otherwise, he's considered to be a safe pair of hands and a, a broadly read um, and probably a good prospect as, as the next chancellor of Germany. Right, so that's that's all of Schultz mm -hmm. and um, Constance. Who are the other players as the coalition negotiations continue? Yes. So the other two parties that he's negotiating with are the Green Party, which was founded in 1980 as an ecological party, but has um, worked very hard to become a mainstream party that covers all the policy bases, domestic and economic and foreign. And the liberals um, who ha last were in government uh, with Angela Merkel, as I was saying, between 20, no, sorry, 2009 and 2013. And um, they are just maybe some, some, some numbers here, although I have to confess, I haven't got them exactly in my head. I think the SPD came in at 25.7. Um, the Greens somewhere around 15% and the Liberals uh, just short of 12. Um, I hope no, no listener kills me if this isn't exact. It's been a couple of weeks. But basically, um, what is notable here is that the Social Democrats used to be, like the CDU, um, the Christian Democrats, Merkel's party, a so-called popular parties that would poll in the high 30s or even above 40%. Those days are long gone. So 25.7 is a you know fairly close to the numbers of the other two parties, which gives the the coalition negotiators a sort of by German standards very unusual level of equality. 
and um, and it gives the two smaller parties a degree of confidence that smaller negotiating parties in Germany in the past really just haven't had. Um, but they seem to be uh, absolutely determined to make this work. And the truth is that, that there are no realistic alternative options, so they know they have to succeed. Um, but they also have some really big topics that they need to settle, some genuine ideological disagreements. And so the coalition talks, which began that began today, and according to the negotiators, are supposed to end by the end of November uh, with the possibility of a government being installed in the week of December 6th. Um, there is tremendous pressure and public vigilance on these negotiations. And these coalition talks is uh, a fairly foreign subject for a lot of our American listeners because we we don't have them here. Right. That said, like what what will the outcomes entail? Like, will the leaders of the Greens and the leaders of the SDP be have prominent roles in the cabinet of Olaf Scholz? Mm-hmm. Or sure. and what what other issues seem to be dominating these coalition talks? Like like you said. Sure. So, so just, um, I mean, to take us back to first principles, um, Germany is a parliamentary democracy. Uh, America is a presidential democracy. Big difference. Um, in Germany, technically, it is the parties who form a government and then elect a the, the, the chancellor candidate of the strongest party in the parliament to be the chancellor. And um, there is no such thing, or, or not, it certainly hasn't been in the history of Germany post-war, as a as one-party government. Uh, the chancellor has always had to rule in coalitions, has always had to take account of uh, another party. This is the first time since the, the early 1950s, though, that we are seeing a three-way coalition at the national level, and that presents its own difficulties. Now, the sort of main ideological challenge here is that there is, I think, a common consensus among the three negotiating parties that um, Germany is on the verge of some quite major transformations of its economy, its labor market, and possibly also of the way it organizes its democracy its physical and its digital infrastructure. This is unfinished business, something that um, the the Chancellor Merkel left undone for one reason or another, um, maybe because she had so many crises on her plates that she um, just never got around to this, um, didn't have the political support for this. But I think now there there is a um, really quite durable consensus that this can no longer wait. So the the ideology, the question, however, um, on which there are ideological differences is what role government and markets respectively should play in this and how it is to be funded. What these the winner Social Democrats and the Greens have in common is that they are by inclination and tradition much more statist than the liberals, so much more inclined to accept, support, practice government intervention and give the state a strong role as a provider um, of public goods and an arbiter of their distribution. Um, Whereas the liberals have 
since uh, since their inception, um, had a strong preference for letting markets um, make these decisions, as it were. Not, however, in the sort of American libertarian way, in an unregulated way, German liberals are, are quite happy to see regulated markets. So the differences aren't as stark as they would be here. Then on funding, funding innovation and transformation, also enormous differences. The um, Social Democrats and the Greens are inclined to accept both tax increases and pushing up the constitutionally mandated debt ceiling. The Liberals are firmly against either of those options. So the big question is how can those these transformations be funded? I haven't mentioned climate transformation. That that is really the sort of the common um, I think the, the the common denominator of, of many of the of, of, of the transformations that, that we're talking about. There is a real sense in Germany and in Europe that that climate change is tangible and it's it, it is having a real impact on people's lives. So one of the questions, one of the first questions in these negotiations will be who becomes finance minister? And there the liberals have made it very clear that that is a job that they want, but the Greens have said they also want it and they're not going to give that up without a fight. So that's going to be the that's going to be, I think, the, the question on which we will we will see which direction this government takes. And of course the irony here being that the uh, the Chancellor um, to come, Olaf Scholz, is is currently finance minister um, and presumably um, has some ideas of his own on this. And it seems that the new German government will have to, on the one hand, deal with the transformation of the German economy, and on the other hand, deal with an increasingly um, chaotic world and international system, and where, where even more challenges present themselves. So... I wanted to now discuss a little bit more about uh, Germ the future of German foreign policy and how it might potentially shift under Olaf Scholz, the next potential chancellor. But first, what, in your opinion, will be the major foreign policy challenges facing the next German government? I understand that a lot of them will be holdovers from current Germ current foreign policy challenges, but I would love to hear your opinion. Sure. Um, I think it's correct to say that there is nothing um, on the horizon now that looks, you know, particularly revolutionary or new compared to what Angela Merkel was dealing with, except that in many ways, the relationships um, that she managed very shrewdly, um, you know, seem to have become more and more tense and um, the sort of overall mood seems to have darkened. Um, let's start with a, with 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 Europe. Um, within the European Union, there are some some really serious disputes brewing. Um, the impact of Brexit, um, the British leaving the European Union, is still making itself felt. There is a big dispute over the status of Northern Ireland um, as re relative to the Irish Republic with which it shares the island and which, of course, is a member of the European Union, disputes over how to handle that border. Um, there is a uh, real dispute with the, um, the Polish government, which is a hard right government, uh, which is challenging the applicability and validity of European law in Poland uh, to the dismay of other Europeans. Um, and there is a um, 
there are wide disagreements uh, between uh, Merkel's government and other Europeans about how hard to crack down on this. Um, and finally, there is a real fear that um, a the, the French elections next spring might produce a, a very serious um, hard right, xenophobic, um, Islamophobic challenger to the incumbent president Emmanuel Macron. Um, the current challenger Eric Zemmour um, is, uh, you know, a real. Uh, I mean, it's, it's the real article in terms of of, of the hard right, and um, is, uh, I think, if elected could perhaps quite seriously attempt to take France out of the European Union, in which case um, we would see a, an existential uh, threat to the existence of the EU as it stands now. So um, you'd think that would be enough to be going with, but of course there is, I think, a, a still um, you know, much more positive than in the Trump era, but still quite tense relationship with the Trump administration. Um, the withdrawal and then the evacuation from Afghanistan the AUKUS submarine deal, the travel ban, um, trade, all these are issues that are, you know, still um, have left a sort of lingering tension in the relationship. And of course, um, the, the Biden administration is preparing a global force posture review and a nuclear posture review that might have quite significant implications for security in Europe and within NATO, the transatlantic alliance. And then to round things off, um, you know, very tense relationships with Russia, uh, which is currently um, using uh, gas shortages, supply shortages and price spikes in Europe to put pressure on Germany to put the Nord Stream 2 pipeline online. And, um, and finally, um, a, a China that is becoming, you know, more and more of a assertive, aggressive, bullying presence, not just in its own neighborhood, but in the European periphery, and in fact, in you know, in Europe itself, trying to under you know, just to to sort of foment division and and intimidate um, European member states. So yeah, the next the next German government is going to have a lot on its plate. I want to now know how you anticipate a Schultz-led government approaching these challenges in a potentially different way than his predecessor. So just to begin with, um, at the beginning of our conversation, you mentioned that Chancellor, Chancellor Merkel really prioritized the well-being of the German economy and uh, German business relations. And to that end, we saw, uh, we saw her government taking a hard line when it came to Russia Nord Stream 2 and U.S. concerns. We also saw the comprehensive investment agreement that her government um, signed with China. Do we expect these things to continue, these, this business and economic relationship with Russia and China to continue? Or do we expect them to perhaps not be as friendly? Well, I can't give you a black and white answer to that because I don't think that the negotiators know exactly. Um, I think that... Germans' attitudes, uh, not just policymakers, but the German public's attitudes to Russia and China have hardened considerably. Um, in the case of Russia, because of the illegal annexation of Crimea and the ongoing proxy war in Ukraine, um, and of course, um, you know, the 
attempt to murder Alexei Navalny and the, and the killing of a um, Chechen um, opposition member in, in broad daylight in a park in Berlin um, a couple of years ago. That, that kind of thing um, has not made the Kremlin very popular in Germany. And also German business has become sort of very disenchanted um, with, with Russian markets. Um, that said, the, you know, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline uh, puts the German government in a real bind. And although Olaf Scholz has said in um, German um, electoral campaign debates that um, if the Russians use the pipeline as a means of pressuring uh, for uh, politically pressuring Germany, uh, it could be turned off or not turned on. Um, I, I think the jury is still out on whether they will actually do that um, and in what way they will react to, to Russia's current posturing. Um, the Nord Stream 2 issue, I just want to add, is significantly complicated by the fact that there is a huge energy shortage in China and the um, creation of liquid, of real liquid national, uh, sorry, uh, uh, liquid natural gas markets, LNG markets, means that um, you don't need you don't need only pipelines these days to to transport gas, and so the Russians suddenly have a choice between sending gas to Europe and sending gas to China, um, which makes the makes the supply problems for Europe even more complicated than they used to be. Um, on China, I think the Merkel's very cautious balancing of uh, the relationship with China um, because of uh, because she didn't want to upset German industry and particularly car manufacturers um, who are very, very heavily dependent on exports to China and manufacturing in China. I think that position has increasingly come under criticism in Germany, um, even within her own party, within the Social Democratic Party and others. Um, and even German industry has become very wary, um, and and has said so in 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 uh, you know public papers. But again, the the proof of of this uh, shift in mood will be in whether a newly elected government will have the political bandwidth um, to stand up to Chinese assertiveness. Um, that'll be a very important sort of first proof of its, uh, of its staying power, I think. Um, and, and then there is the relationship with America, which I think, you know, this government comes in, if, if it is, um, sworn in, in early December, it will have, uh, to take on the challenge of running the G7 presidency for half a year from January onwards. Um, and of course, 2022 is also the year which we'll see the American midterms. And that I think we'll see a great deal of political tension within America and possibly reduce the already limited bandwidth that the Biden administration has for dealing with foreign policy problems and, and allies um, even further. So I would expect there to be some quite significant tensions that will really tax the professionalism and the experience of this new government that's coming in. Uh, I, that was actually just going to be my next question uh, re regarding United States and German relations, because I think that due to 
U.S. foreign policy turning to a focus towards China and what China is and is not doing, I think that sometimes U.S. foreign policymakers see the world in a rather black and white manner. And when they look at German Germany making a comprehensive investment agreement with China, that of course brings tension to the relationship. So, I I wanted to 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 ask you to elaborate on how you expect U.S.-German relations to potentially shift under a new German government. I know that it's also reliant on the U.S. having the bandwidth to engage with that new German government, and it's also reliant on some sort of continuity in the U.S. government as well. But I, I would love to see how Olaf Scholz adds a different dimension to the relationship. Yeah, I think... I mean, I, I think one shouldn't um, be overly worried, at least on ideological terms. Um, the, in some ways, the the both Schultz, the 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 chief foreign policy and security experts on both the in both the Green Party and the Liberal Party consider themselves committed transatlanticists. And and they are inclined, I think, on on the point of of the United States to agree with it, with each other on, on in principle, but there are some really important and difficult um, specific topics coming up where I think I, I can foresee some quite serious differences between Washington and Berlin. One one is defense um, budgets. The all three of the negotiating parties have in the election campaign and in their campaign platform papers um, challenged or questioned the 2% defense spending commitments that NATO member states made at the Wales summit in 2014. Um, that's not going to be met kindly in Washington, um, but it's, I think, a real uh a real reservation on the side of the German negotiators, again, because of the aforementioned um, enormous transformational challenges and the disputes between the coalition negotiators on how to pay for them. I, I think there will simply be less money for government functions um, all the way around, and this may very well affect um, German defense spending. Then the second really big issue that could be become quite contentious is nuclear participation. Now, Germany does not have nuclear weapons, won't have them, shouldn't have them. Um, that's some, something I think uh, every everybody in Germany is agreed on. But um, we host American nuclear weapons on uh, in Germany, on, on German territory. And we have fighter planes that are equipped to carry American nuclear weapons in the case of a warfare that goes uh, a, a, a warfare that goes nuclear, and those fighter planes are nearing the end of their lifetime if they're not already there, frankly, and need to be replaced. And there has been a huge drawn-out dispute between the Merkel's Christian Democrats and her Social Democratic government partners now. Um, about the need 
and uh, need to replace these planes and what to replace them with, which in reality, of course, is, uh, is a fight over whether we should be um, even in a position to contribute to nuclear warfare. And there, the left wing of the Social Democrat and its um, leader, the parliamentary whip of Mützenich, have a very pronounced position there against it. And the we saw a couple days ago a, a little bit of a spat in um, where where Mützenich criticized the current defense minister who had given a, an interview on this to German national radio and said that she was engaging in dangerous escalatory language in the same way as the Russians and, and asked her to cease and desist. Now, all she had been doing was to repeat uh, the NATO's position. But um, immediately the leader of the left wing of the Greens chimed in and seconded his, his criticism and I suspect that what is happening here is that the the quite strong left wings of the Social Democrats and the Greens are looking at a new federal legislature with a lot of very new and very young members, many of whom have no foreign and security policy expertise, and are hoping to rally them to their side on this. And that could become a quite significant uh, point of contention uh, at uh, within the bilateral U.S.-German relationship and at NATO. And uh, Constanze, to wrap up the podcast, um, I want to end the podcast with a way with, with a question that could potentially get our, th our our listeners thinking. And for that matter, um, if there's one thing that our listeners could take away from German politics, the next German government, or Chancellor Chancellor Merkel's legacy, what do you think that is? That's really hard to say, but I, I, I will say this. I think that I'm, I've now lived in America since 2014. It's the third time in my life that I'm living here. Um, I was here once as a child and then as a graduate student. And um, I think that American foreign and security policy experts um, have come to realize just how little hard power and being a superpower means in a globalized interconnected world where even a superpower can't decouple from the world even if it tries to i mean the trump administration the trump administration tried and didn't really manage and so what happens in what happens in Europe, what what your allies do, and whether they succeed in resolving their own democratic problems, their problems of, of economic transformation, um, resolving security conflicts in their neighborhoods, I think matters to America more than it ever did. Uh, you have a real stake in whether Germans figure this out, because what happens in Germany has a significant impact on the prosperity, the stability, and the security of Europe. So it it's not just a, a, a matter of academic interest. It is actually a matter of genuine political and economic interest for America. Well, Constance, on that, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. You're very welcome. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. 
We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.